the letter the prophet Jeremiah sent to the elders, the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile to Babylon. Thus says the Lord God of Israel to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile, build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat what they produce, take wives and have sons and daughters, take wives for your sons, give your daughters in marriage, that they may bear sons and daughters. Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you. Pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your own. This is the word of the Lord. We're already anticipating February when Dr. Walter Brueggemann will be our Barton Clinton Gordy presenter. He is a German-American, but certainly very familiar with the work of great German theologians who would demand of a passage like this, how much do you know about its Sitzemleben, its setting in life? We know that Jeremiah was born in the year 645 before the coming of our Lord. We know that he was the son of a priest, a preacher's kid, if you would, who at the age of 18 felt not called to be a priest like his father, but to be a prophet, to go charging right into the royal residence, demanding of the king and all other leaders of Judah that they lead a serious reform of the people. He kept on with this powerful message for 40 years until he was 58 years old and the Babylonians, in fact, laid siege to the city. The Sitzim Laban is found in 2 Kings chapter 25. King Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem. He burned the house of the Lord and the king's house and all the houses of Jerusalem. All the army broke down the walls surrounding Jerusalem. The captain of the guard carried into exile the rest of the people who were left in the city. I have four things I've underlined here. The first is this. The letter to those whom Nebuchadnezzar had carried into exile. These who lived in the lifetime of Jeremiah were certainly not all bad. Some of them were very good people. Many of them had continued to try to hold on to the God of the burning bush with one hand while also playing games with the old gods and goddesses of fertility. They were violating, of course, commandment number one. Hear, O Israel, the Lord, your God is one. You must have no other God but him. You must love him with all of your heart and mind and soul and strength. Some of them were in the wrong place at the wrong time and were carried off into exile. Dr. Steven Pinker is a professor at Harvard University. He has recently written a book contending that though many believe we're living in the most violent period of our history, the truth is we're probably living in the most peaceful era since Homo sapien came into being. That in fact, forensic evidence of skeletal information we have, that is, skeletons found all over the planet, dating back to the time when we were hunters and gatherers, shows that 15%, 15 out of every 100 skeletons they found, shows signs of having violent death. Someone bashed in someone else's head with a rock, 
Someone else beat you to death with a stone axe. Someone else stuck a sharp spear into you and you died. Fifteen out of every hundred they found. But that changed markedly when we learned how to domesticate animals and we learned to till the soil. Almost immediately, the forensic evidence shows that we dropped from 15 violent deaths out of every 100 to only three. The next big drop came at the end of the Dark Ages when Enlightenment, when the Renaissance came to Western Europe, gradually spread to other parts of the world. At that point, deaths committed violently one human on another dropped to six in 10,000. We think there are so many today because our news media is so efficient. If a crazy person starts shooting a bunch of teenagers on an island just off Oslo, the rest of the world knows about it in seconds. If a baby disappears from its crib in Kansas City, everybody knows about it in seconds. Dr. Pinker said this is tragic, of course. When anybody's baby disappears, when anyone's teenagers are shot, that's tragic. But the inclination is to believe we are surrounded by far more violence than we are. The truth is that babies born into the world today, chances are only one in 100,000 will die a violent death at the hand of another human being. You and I are not facing a Nebuchadnezzar who may show up at the outskirts of Tulsa, lay siege to our city, and when we run out of food and water, take us all off to some horrible place. Let's move to number two. Immediately after, we have these words, to those whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile, thus saith the Lord God of Israel, to those whom I have sent into exile, meaning... Because you have been unfaithful to me for 400 years, I decided to sit this one out. I decided to see the enemies come and keep my hands behind my back. In effect, I have offered you up. You will now face the consequences of your irresponsible acts. Some of you will remember well when Dr. John Buchanan was our Barton Clinton Gordy presenter. Uh, he was terrific, still pastor of Fourth Presbyterian Church in Chicago. Fourth Presbyterian is one of the most beautiful churches in our country. It's one of the most powerful ones. It's on that magnificent mile Oprah Winfrey used to talk about a lot. It really is a great place, and he is a great preacher. When Dr. Martin Marty retired after being editor of Christian Century Magazine for years, Dr. John Buchanan took on that job as well, and he's past 70 years of age. He still writes well and preaches very well. Not long ago he was writing in Christian Century that he remembered well when he was ordained. It was 1963. If you're adding subtracting, that's 48 years ago. He'd already been through undergraduate school, had already graduated from seminary, had met all the requirements of being ordained a Presbyterian minister, but he had to face two ministers, Presbyterians, who were finally to write a report on whether they felt he was fit for ministry or not. He said one of these I had heard about, that he was a warm and gracious person. This should not be difficult dealing with him. 
But the other, he said, was a fire-eating evangelical who had been a Presbyterian missionary to Egypt for years. And I dreaded facing him. Surely enough, he said, the interview had barely begun when he pointed his finger at me and asked, John, do you preach for decisions? Now, he said, I knew what that meant. I knew from his background that meant, do you preach a hot and fiery message? Do you walk up and down the aisles begging people to come to Jesus? Do you refuse to say the benediction until somebody comes? And that's not who I was. It's not the background in which I'd grown up. It was not the education I had received. This was 1963. Here we were in this great civil rights trouble times when Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was leading people to march into Selma, Alabama or across the bridge. That wasn't the kind of preaching that I intended to do. But if I simply said, no, I don't preach for decisions, he would have disqualified me. So I gave the answer he wanted me to give. But all these years, I've struggled with that, 48 years do I preach for decisions? I pray yes. I pray I have never been into a service that I did not preach for decision. Asking people to turn from their self-centered ways to receive the grace of God I've come to know in Jesus Christ. Grace, a belief that the Almighty who created the heavens and the earth knows your name, cares about you, wants good to come to you. I'm supposed to be asking people every Sunday, will you receive God's gift of grace? Then he said, but I've got to do what Dietrich Bonhoeffer said we have to do as well. Gee, I laid my magazine down. Two years ago, Gail and I stood in Flossenburg. I've told you about that. It was one of the camps we were determined to see that spring. Flossenburg is not in an easy touristy place like Dachau, which is a suburb of Munich. Flossenburg, if you have no car, and we did not, then you ride a train as far as it goes. Then you have to get off the train. We had to ride a bus, and then we had to transfer to another bus, and finally we got to Flossenburg. We had to walk a little way to the camp maybe four or five people there the whole afternoon we were there. But we walked to gas chamber to gas chamber. We walked and saw the crematoria. We walked to the spot where Dietrich Bonhoeffer was hanged. Only weeks, only weeks from liberation by the American forces, he and his brother-in-law were marched out one cold spring morning, stripped of all their clothes and hanged naked in the yard there. Remember what he wrote? If you want God's grace to deal only with your sin and not with you, the sinner, you cheapen God's gift. The decision is, not only do I want the gift of God's grace, do I want God's grace to change me. To change me. To help me be the person I was created to be no longer to be self-centered, 
but to be God-centered and to be other-centered. And if I'm scratching and clawing and try to take life for myself, I'm losing. And if I'm learning to give, to put other in the center, I'm being given life. Dr. Buchanan said, I pray that every Sunday at Fourth Presbyterian, I'm preaching for decision every Sunday. Number three. Pray for the welfare. The word really here is shalom. Pray for the shalom of your enemies. Work for the shalom of your new city. For it is in their shalom that you find your own. If you find yourself in a place you never intended to be, living somewhere you didn't really plan, Jeremiah says... You're supposed to make the best of it with those people because you'll find it's better for you as well. I've told you I'd lived one place all of my life, six miles outside a small East Texas town. As Nazareth is described in the New Testament, is that nowhere place? Could anything good come out of Nazareth? I came out of one of those places. I was 18 years old two months out of high school. I'd already been accepted at SMU. I had a dorm room reserved for me for the end of August that summer. I was working hard, long hours every day, Monday through Friday, loading, unloading 100-pound sacks of drilling mud. First of August, my district superintendent drove up. I'd met him. I didn't know him well. He asked my boss if he could visit with me a second. My boss called me down off that long flatbed truck. I was ringing wet. This is the 1st of August in Texas. We sat down for a moment, and he told me, I've got two little churches out here. you got a preacher, 31 years old. He's married to a beautiful, talented young woman. She got sick and died. Not very many miles away, there was a young woman whose husband and baby were killed in a car wreck. The congregation thought maybe it'd be a good thing to introduce him to her. Maybe they could pick up their lives together. They introduced them. They started dating. They got married. But after a few months, they decided this was not the right thing, not the right thing, and they've divorced. Back in that time, a divorced preacher was pretty much out. He said he's leaving the ministry and I want you to go over there. You'll start as their new pastor Sunday. I said, I've never preached. Not once. I've never preached. Oh, he said, they're used to student preachers. They'll be very forgiving. I tell you this, just go over there and love them to death. They're disillusioned. They're hurt. They think they're somehow maybe complacent and complicit in all that's happened here. They're feeling terrible. Love them to death. He got in his car and drove away. I had no library. I had no sermons. I had a third grader Bible. I went to be their pastor, but I discovered in time what that meant. These were people I didn't know. 
two little churches I'd never even seen. I'd never been inside. They didn't know me. I was introduced as their new pastor. I'm two months out of high school. But I discovered that loving them to death meant accepting them where they were, not where I wish they were. It meant helping them, if I could, open a door for any child, any youth, any adult that I could. I had people in my church who had worked for United Gas Pipeline for 40 years and were still making $75 a week. To love them meant to encourage them. Every time they did something well, to stroke them and tell them, wow, that was terrific, you did that so well. And when they were hurting, to stand close to them. I'd been there two weeks when Ms. Emma Roselle died, and now I had to do a funeral. I'd only been to two in my life. One of my grandparents, the other grandparent on the other side of the family, I was more concerned about what was happening to my mom and my dad. I didn't even remember whether the preacher walked in front of the casket, behind the casket. Where did he stand when they were putting the casket down into the ground? I had a district superintendent who followed that one who said to me, when the Methodist church sends you somewhere, you should try to build the kind of church you would be happy to pastor the rest of your life. Build the church you would be happy to pastor the rest of your life. You never know whether you get called again by the district superintendent, the bishop, what may be offered, may not be offered. Build the best you've got where you are. I remember Dr. Bass saying, just love them to death. Number four. Our scholars believe that there were some who had gone into exile who tried to cheer up the others by saying, hey, we'll be out of here in a month, year, two years, three. Jeremiah said, not so. If you read a little bit farther, he even uses the word 70 years. The word 70 years. That was more than a lifetime in his day. Which meant, those of you who are going into exile are not coming home alive. You'll never be back in Jerusalem. You'll never be back in Judah. So what do you need to do? Build yourself a house. Plant yourself a garden. Get married. Have children. Marry your sons and your daughters. Let them have children. Do the very common things. Wake up every morning and do the best you can with the day that's been dealt you. Just do the best you can with the day that's been dealt you. That's what God expects of you, honoring always that there's only one God and what this God wants of you. Two years ago, as I mentioned, Gail and I were in Germany. We were in Berlin again. Our third trip there. We were there with our sons in 1988, a year before the wall came down. Nobody dreamed the wall was about to come down in 1988. Berlin was still a divided city. That huge wall ran right through the middle of the city, right through 
Potsdamer Platz, one of the most famous uh, plazas in all of the world. Today, it's a thriving place again. Huge buildings built by Sony with a Dunkin' Donut and a Subway sandwich shop, all kinds of stores from all over the world. Adidas over there, the sporting goods stores. When we were there before, in 88, a divided city. When we were back the second time, now a reunited city, the wall gone two years ago. Wow, what a modern city. The fastest, biggest, most modern train station in Europe, Berlin. The trains come so quietly. If they tell you it'll be there at 10.07, it'll be there at 10.07. If they say it'll leave at 10.09, it'll leave at 10.09. You can count on it. We walked around the city. We were there several days. We walked to the place where the 1936 Olympics were held. 1936. Adolf Hitler had come to power just a little more than two years before. Already the Olympics were set. Stadiums were being built. People from all over the world had come to compete. The cornerstone of Adolf Hitler's Nazism was that the superior people on the planet are blonde, blue-eyed, and as fair as possible, the Aryan race. He arrived at the Olympic Stadium for its opening exercises in military uniform, and 100,000 people jumped to their feet and screamed, Heil Hitler. And then a young black man walked onto the track. The people of Berlin had read his name in their papers, and a whisper went through the crowd, Yesa Ovens, Yesa Ovens, they said. He was the son of an Alabama sharecropper, as my mother's mother and father were sharecroppers in Texas. Sharecropping families usually had lots of kids because every kid could eventually end up in the field working you had to work somebody else's land, you got only half of what you produced. You needed lots of hands, lots of workers. This little boy was sickly. There were many days when he could only stay in the shade, couldn't pull a cotton sack. His dad decided, mom decided, we got to get out of Alabama. There's no future here. And so they had what few belongings they could pull together with this big family of theirs. They moved all the way north to Cleveland, Ohio. And one day this little boy was running in the play yard and a coach saw him. He asked him, son, would you be willing to run on that track out there for me? Put a pair of shoes on him, got his stopwatch, and saw him run a 100-yard dash in 10 seconds flat. He was 12 years old. Eventually, he was offered scholarship to run for Ohio State University, and then came the Olympics and Yessa Ovens walked onto the track. He broke three world's records, tied a fourth, and won four gold medals. The family now in Columbus, Ohio, besieged with newspaper reporters and cameramen, and one pushed a mic in front of his mother. So tell us about your son. And she said, my Jess, was always a face boy. When he came to a problem, he just faced it. <laughs>